Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio. Heard around the web on LivingWealthyRadio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. With negative financial news coming out of the Federal Reserve, Europe, Asia, and all over, many are starting to wonder if the recovery will ever get here. Some are even concerned we're headed back into another recession or even depression. Is it time to cash out of the stock market and prepare for the coming storm? Or are we in the middle of a storm and just don't realize it? What's going to happen next? Our guest, Harry Dent, predicted the 2008 crash through analyzing demographic trends. As an economist and trends forecaster, he has a stunning outlook for what the economic future holds. He is the best-selling author of The Demographic Cliff, and he's here to share with us his forecast for the next months and years and give us some tips for how to save money and invest wisely. Thank you so much for coming back to Living Wealthy Radio, Harry. So with bad news from the Fed's poor job growth in the U.S. and negative numbers coming out of Europe, what do you think is coming next for the world economy? What happens next? Yeah, it's kind of all about, we've been warning people this for years, is all of this quantitative easing and stuff, it's just an artificial recovery. The baby boomers peaked in their spending back in 2007, as we predicted 20 years before that, and as we predicted in the late 80s would happen in Japan in the 90s. And we have the greatest debt bubble in history here and around the world. All it took was some demographic slowing and a subprime crisis in U.S. lending and, and, and mortgages to trigger the last crisis. But you don't get a, you know, a worldwide stock crash and recessions and near depressions in many countries um, unless you know, there's a reason for it. You can't get that over just because of subprime crisis in four states. So, yes, I mean, this was the beginning of what we call a longer-term depression or winter season starting in 2008. We don't really come out of it demographically and from other cycles and trends we look at it until at least 2020 and more so around 2022 to 23. And, and yes, we've, I, we've been saying, you know, this recovery will not last uh, Governments can't keep fighting demographic trends that just get worse, and governments are encouraging even more debt, especially in the emerging world, who is even less creditworthy and more prone to crashes. Um, you know, and 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 think we're going to come out of this. They're only making it worse with all this free money, zero interest rates, and uh, increasing debt. In fact, people say a lot of economists say, "Oh, we've been deleveraging debt," and hey, you know, we're, we've been going through austerity. Yeah, a few countries like Greece and. Spain and stuff, and us a little bit in the consumer sector. Global U.S. has more debt than we had at the beginning of, you know, of the last crisis, um, and globally, because the emerging countries have taken on so much more, uh, we have fifty-seven trillion dollars more global debt than we had mm. uh, in two thousand seven. So, so we have not deleveraged. We've only added more debt. Free money has only created more speculation in markets. And yes, this is coming apart. So we are starting a bigger crash. Um, I think the markets did peak in May uh, of last year, and we're in the first wave down. Uh, and it's already been an extreme crash in China, and that's not that's only the first wave there. So if it's down 40, 45 percent there, imagine how far that could go and how quick. Uh, but this is just the first wave, and the U.S. is you know Europe's down. 20-some percent in most leading countries. And the U.S. has only been down 10 to 12. And a lot of people think we're rebounding now. We think we're just getting ready to go into another stage of the first wave. And again, this is just the first wave of a crash. We had three waves of crash uh, between late 2007 and early 2009. We're going to see, I think, a similar scenario. This is the first wave. It's likely to bottom in the next you know, two, three weeks or so. 
Um, and then we'll get, see some sort of rally, and everybody will think it's over again, and then you'll see the biggest crash, as we did in 2008, um, you know, probably the first several months of next year, and then you'll see a final kind of more minor crash, and, and we expect to bottom somewhere around uh, – Late 2016, early 2017 is is as low as 5,500 to 6,000 on the Dow. So we're talking a bigger crash than 2008. This time it will be. I mean, it was becoming a depression, but they prevented it. But I think this time it's going to be pretty hard for the Fed and global central banks to say, "Oh, well, this one ended up worse than the last one after all of our free money." So we're going to print three times as much free money. I don't think people are going to go for that this time. Well, Harry, let's let's set you up right though. You introduce yourself to our audience. You have been on Living Wealthy Radio several times. I love your background. I love how you think. I love how, you know, bubbly your personality is especially for an economist, which is you know, how you start out, right? And so share with our audience how you develop these models for such a high percentage of predictability in in what you say. Well, well, again, you know, I, I actually I, I started as an econom, uh, economics major in, in college, and then after the first three courses, I just quit. I said, well, "What? This doesn't seem to mean anything." Economists disagree on everything, unlike most scientists, and nobody can understand them. And like you say, they have no sense of humor on top of that. So <laughs> it, it's uh, you know, and, and so I just started taking business. And, and, and then I went to Harvard Business School, and I, and I was working for large corporations, then, a, then Bain & Company, it's a big consulting firm globally. And I said, you know, I don't like working with big companies because it takes them too long to change. So I started consulting to entrepreneurial companies in California, and, and more like just consumer-based companies, not high-tech, not Apple computer sort of stuff, just small ventures capturing new trends from baby boomers in the early 80s. And, and when I did that, I, I started to have to study the baby boom generation. I realized how big they were, how new young generations start new trends, and then adopt them as they get older and, and, and earn more money and spend more money. That, that it's really people that drive our economy and not all the government policies and tinkering. Uh, yeah, that always affects short term, but governments react they don't create trends, they react. I mean, in emerging countries, maybe they do when you, you set up a country so it can grow. But once you're a, a, a democratic or somewhat democratic, you know, free capitalist country like most of the Western world, it's the, you know, new generations grow up, earn and spend more money, get more productive. As they expand their spending and incomes, then businesses expand their capacity. And then government incomes and taxes go up from taxing everybody. And that's what drives the company. you got to look at it, it, the consumers and what they'll predictably do as they age, and I quickly found that, oh my gosh, consumers are just as predictable as life insurance actuaries. See, they are life insurance actuaries can tell you in any country and at any age when when the average person is going to die. They can't tell when any individual is going to die. Even the damn doctors can't tell that most of the time, looking at them three months before they die. But they can tell you, like, the United States, the average person is going to die at 79.8. Japan, it's 84.1, and on and on and on. So we do the same thing. I, I kept doing more and more research since I tripped on this demographic secret. And I don't know why it's a secret, but it is to economists and, and most people. It's not to marketers. Marketers totally understand demographics and how people differ by age and what they spend on and all this sort of stuff. Um, but I found early on that the peak spending of uh, the baby boomers in the United States was right at 46. There's kind of a plateau from the late 30s when they buy their first, their largest home to the mid-50s where they buy their largest car and get their kids fully out of school and college. But the peak for the average person is 46. So I said, okay, I can just take the birth index, move it forward for the peak in spending in the U.S. or any country, and, and the peak in spending tends to be 47 in most of Europe Japan, very close, shows how similar people are around the world. And that's when I started saying, oh, my gosh, in the, in the late 80s, I started saying, we're going to have the greatest boom in history. This baby boom is giant, and they're bringing powerful technologies when they're young. They're going to move mainstream, you know, personal computers and wireless phones and Internet, ultimately, and all this sort of stuff. And then we're going to have a big bust. I mean, the baby boomers are going to peak out around 2007, and from 2008 – into 2020, 22, when the Generation X is doing everything in smaller numbers, buying homes, cars, houses, spending, everything, we're going to have 
a decline, just like we did in the 70s when the Bob Hope generation peaked and in the 30s when the Henry Ford generation peaked. So I started with demographics, but since I've added cycles for innovation that peak about every 45 years like a clock, cycles for geopolitical cycles that say the world's going to be really nice for 17 to 18 years like it was from 1983 to 2000, then it's going to be really nasty from 2001 to 2019 or 20, just as it has been ever since 9-11. I mean, I count the things that have gone wrong and are still going on wrong in the world, and this cycle tells me we got at least another four years of this, so it's not going to get better anytime soon. We're not going to have kumbaya or a final settlement in the Middle East or, or, or you know, whatever we're, you know, tug a rope with, with Putin and all this stuff. It's only going to get worse. So, you know, I've been able to, and, and plus we have uh, boom and bust cycles about every 10 years. And I used to follow a 10-year cycle by a guy called Ned Davis that said the worst crashes and recessions happen in the first two and a half, three years of every decade. And that worked most of the time. It didn't work in 2010 to 12. So I went back and said, okay, what's wrong here? This cycle no longer worked. And I found out by some other researchers that sunspot cycles correlate with these booms and busts. 88% of all the major financial crashes or stock corrections or recessions or depressions um, have happened in this down sunspot cycle. And it's not a, it's, it's an average 10-year cycle, but it goes anywhere from 8 to 13 years. So mm. unless you can project that cycle, which I can't, it's not that useful, but scientists do project it at NASA, at Stanford. I mean, major, major sciences, because it affects the space program, it affects infra- electronic infrastructures, it affects weather, rainfall, sunshine, all types of stuff. This is a heavy-duty cycle that, again, economists would never think of looking at. This cycle pointed down between early 2000 and, and um, mid, uh, mid-2009, exactly where we had the two worst last crashes and financial crisis. It turned up into 2014. Now it's pointing down again into late 2019, early 2020. So I now have, Teresa, all four of my key proven tracked over decades and centuries cycles, the demographic, the generation spending cycle, the innovation cycle, the geopolitical cycle, and this boom-bust cycle turning down together uh, from mid-2014 into early 2020. The only two times that's happened in the last century were the mid, early to mid-70s, where we had the great inflation and recession cycle and the 73 to 74 crash, and in from 29 to 34, where we had the Great Depression and the greatest crash in history. So that tells me if there's a time to worry about, oh, should I pull out of stocks or should I listen to my stockbroker and just buy and hold and hope it'll come back? No. This, uh, I've, 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 it's taken me 30 years to put together all four of these cycles and to know how to time them better and project them better. And it says this is the most dangerous period for investing in the economy we will see in our entire lifetimes and the next such period, which because I can project out most of these cycles that long, the next period would be in the 2070s for your grandkids. Mm. Wow. Wow. And economists say nobody can predict the future past the next election. It shows they don't understand the uh, dynamics of the economy that they're looking at because Nobody, I can't predict day-to-day stocks. I can just guess. But long-term cycles, we have found more and more. Again, we predicted the collapse of Japan in the late 80s when nobody saw it. It looked impossible. It looked like they were riding a 20-foot wave that would never end. And it was just demographics and, and a bubble in real estate and stocks that, that were way overvalued, needed to burst. We could see it clearly. Nobody else could. It happened. We saw the real estate peak in 2000, late 2005. Now, I'm, I was just saying, look, this thing looks like it's peaking, and demographics is turning against it, and it's bubbly. Get out. Nobody thought that was possible. Next thing you know, we got six years of the worst housing decline, even worse than we saw in the Great Depression when housing didn't bubble so much coming into it. So we're just seeing long-term cycles uh, literally over the rest of your lifetime are highly predictable with unreasonable tolerances. It's the short term. You know, it's for me to say, did the market really peak on May 20th in 2014, or is it going to make one more new high, you know, this January, and then you go down? That's really hard. And I have a newsletter, and I make guesses of that all the time, but we have to tell our subscribers, the short term is hard to predict. 
And, and the best thing you can do when things get overvalued and our long-term cycles turn down, a number of them, or in this case, all of them, you need to just get out of the way. Uh, you don't need to try to dodge it or stuff. You either need to get on a trading system that's proven, can play the ups and downs, or you need to get in the safest investments and wait for the next crash to happen before you reinvest. It's that simple. So what do you think are the safest investments? Of what? Oh. What do you think those investments are? Okay. Well, they're very limited. And here's the reason. When the last demographic cycle peaked uh, um, between, in, in 1968 and things started to turn down, well, it, 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 it was in, um, dominated by the United States. Um, emerging countries were growing because there was inflation, and that favors commodities. Real estate was doing well because inflation favors real estate. It's the biggest single correlator with real estate and gold, is, is inflation. Japan was in a totally different cycle from the United States as they've been ever since, and they were doing well. So you could have been in a portfolio that's, okay, now I'm switching to Japan, commodities like gold and metals and stuff, uh, emerging countries that benefit from that, but you would have had to be out of bonds because of the inflation and out of stocks because of the downturn in the economy. So there, you, there, there were a lot of things you could have been in, but you'd have had to be out of the most key investment. This time it's different. This has been a bubble across the board, just like we saw from 1914 to 1929. And when those bubbles burst, and they're driven by falling interest rates, easy money, um, Federal Reserve and central banks pushing interest rates down, making money free, it's driven a lot by speculation, especially in the late stages. So when those bubbles burst, everything goes down. Junk bonds go down, and they're already uh, peaked, and we called that a couple years ago. Stocks go down everywhere in the world like they did in 2008. Commodities go down. Real estate goes down. And this time it's going to be much broader in the world because a lot of bubbles have been extended by all this cheap money. So there's nowhere to hide except, and this was proven in the Great Depression, in the decade of the 1930s, the worst the United States has ever seen, high-quality government bonds, treasury bonds, like 10-year, 30-year, did very well. They, they doubled in value with the dividends, which, I mean, the interest, which doesn't sound like much for a decade except when everything else is crashing, you, and you could buy stuff with that money cheap. It was great. The other thing was AAA corporate bonds. So really only high-quality bonds and safe investments. They preserve your capital and benefit from the deflation in prices that comes after a credit bubble, unlike the inflation crisis we had in the 70s. And, and, and then when different sectors crash, because they don't all crash at the same time, we're looking at, at, at probably – the best time to buy these safe assets, long-term bonds, is going to be early next year because there's going to be a little worldwide squeeze for a lot of reasons that are complicated to get into. By 2017, commodities, they, they've been routed so bad, they could bottom, and emerging markets could start to turn around. But the developed countries with their bad demographics and their much higher debt and complicated problems are not going to come out of this until the early 2020s. So, as this thing is proceeding and you've got your money and safe money, and maybe you're even making some money on those bonds because interest rates are going down in a, in a bad economy and deflation, then you, every time something crashes, you say, okay, I'll start buying more of this. I mean, Joseph Kennedy bought the stock market in 32 after selling it in 29 at 10 cents on the dollar and, and made a fortune even though adjusted for inflation and overall, you know, the next bull market didn't start till the early 40s. Well, stocks... And real estate, in that case, you could have bought early on. Some other things you couldn't have. But So that, that's what you do. The, the best way to benefit from a bubble bursting is simply to get out of the way of it. If you just put your money in, in treasury bills and make nothing, and everything falls, if stocks fall 70% in the next few years, as I expect, and real estate falls another 30%, 40%, and you know, commodities keep falling, and, and oil's at $10, $20 a barrel, and gold's at $300. I mean, you're going to be able to buy anything you want, any financial asset, including beachfront property, at 10, 20, 30, 40 cents on the dollar, and that's how you make money. You don't make money by trying to get a 5% yield on a junk bond instead of a 2% yield on a treasury. That junk bond's just going to kill you. Junk bonds go down about as fast as stocks do. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Because they're risky. That's why they call them junk. 
And something else you've mentioned in, in our previous shows that you like is um, good quality whole life insurance. Yes, yes. I mean... Um, as a, as a uh, safe uh, place to park money. Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, the thing, I mean, the only financial institutions that did well in the 1930s obviously wasn't investment banks, wasn't brokerage firms, wasn't banks who had bad loans and all this sort of stuff and investment failures. It was the insurance companies because, first of all, they bet scientifically on the future people just like I do. And second of all, they are regulated and have to put their investments in safer bonds, largely. The very things I'm talking about, mm-hmm. long-term quality treasuries. And, and so those policies are going to hold up and pay off where a lot of things aren't. And if you use um, insurance-based investment products, which you have to pay some extra fees for, you can lock in gains. If some people say, well, I want to keep some of my stock portfolio and I want to keep my dividend. Well, they have ways to, to hedge what you do, give you uh, less strong gains, but to guarantee you're not going to lose money. Mm-hmm. So, so that's something you can only do with life insurance-based products. But you need to deal with somebody who knows what they're doing. A lot of people sell this stuff at, at higher than average fees, I mean, because they are more complicated. But they sell them to people who don't need them. If you're in a high-tax bracket and you're looking to preserve capital, yes, uh, it, it's the only way to do it other than just being in treasury bills and earning nothing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. What do you think about the, ne- the, the next larger demographic group you call the Generation X and the Millennials? How do you see them affecting um, the economy from a demographic perspective in, let's say, the, the 2020s and 2030s? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, there's always something booming because some – growing sector, even though baby boomers are on a decline from 2008 to about 2022, before the millennials get large enough entry in the workforce and large enough of peak spenders to offset the decline of the baby boomers. That takes a long time because you've got a big, rich generation peaking, turning down. You've got a, a smaller at first, younger generation earning less with no wealth and savings turning up. Well, they're not going to offset the rich generation at first. And and the baby boomers were massively larger than the Bob Hope generation. But when the stock market peaked, adjusted for inflation in 1968, it didn't turn around until late 1982, 14 years later. And then we had the greatest boom in history as the baby boomers got momentum. So this millennial generation, which follows X, Generation X is the declining births. I mean, they're the ones causing the downturn because they do everything in fewer numbers. The millennials will come along. They've already started in the workforce. Their first surge is from 2023 to 2036, approximately, demographically. Then there's a kind of a decline in the middle of that generation, which is rare for seven years. And then they have a second wave that will drive the economy up from about 2044 to 2055, 56, way beyond what we're thinking. But you're going to see the next global boom, next U.S. boom, and in the global boom, especially when you include much stronger demographics in emerging countries, um, we'll see another boom driven by the millennials. But it's not going to start for a long time. But right now, if you're in apartment buildings, you're the one sector of real estate's doing well because people peak in their demand for rentals at age 26, 27. And, and that's still rising for the first wave of millennials. So so even in this downturn, I mean, baby boomers are going to buy more RVs compared to cars in the next several years. Um, they're going to spend more and more on health care the rest of their life, and especially in the areas that they value and spend their own dollars on, what I call discretionary health and wellness kind of expenditures, which would even include um, cosmetic surgery and things like that. Uh, nursing homes, there, there are not enough of them now. Baby boomers haven't even started their wave of entry into nursing homes, which is really something that booms around people in their late 70s to, to early 80s for women. Um, and so, you know, if you're investing in nursing homes or building nursing homes or, or managing nursing homes or working for nursing homes, you're not going to have to worry. It's going to grow even in this downturn, but it's not going to offset the broader declines in automobiles and furniture and housing and everything else where people spend most of their money. Well, and 
the baby boomers that are buying the RVs, I think the problem is that they're not going to have anybody to sell it to except other baby boomers. But that, you know, at that point, it's like the, the, the pig and the python, right? The baby boomers are moving through the python and who are they going to dump the RVs to? Because the millennials, their spending habits and their thinking, they're much more about a minimalistic lifestyle and sharing cars and um, they're not going to be buying RVs. Right. Yeah, and, and the big surge in RVs really happens, and, and that's one of the problems with RVs. It's going to be great for several years, although the down economy is going to temper it. But, but lower gas prices will also help. I tell you, I think you're going to see some people selling their home and living in their damn RV. I'm, I'm serious about this. And if oil prices go as low as I think in the next several years, down to you know, $10, $20 a barrel, that's the, that's the biggest problem with RVs is that been their high gas prices because they get six to eight miles a gallon. But it's a, it's a short surge. Yeah, if I were to buy an RV now, or, or somebody's like 53-year-olds, I'd say, and just think about buying an RV, I'd say, yeah, good time to do it, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Keep it for seven years and sell it. After that, you're right. Baby boomers in that age range are going to decline drastically, and the, and the millennials aren't going to reach that until you're dead and, and well into your next lifetime. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it's just not going to happen. So. Mm-hmm. Again, but any demographic sector, I take any sector where I can determine a peak in spending, and we've got hundreds of categories. And so, you know, I would just take RVs and do a a 60-year lag for peak spending and say, okay, this is going to boom into 2021. You know, after that, yeah, Um, unless you want to live in it for life and it's paid off and blah, 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 and you love it, I would sell it. Right, dump it. So you think that oil prices are going to go down to 10 to $20 a gallon. Where does, and, and I, I understand from a conceptual perspective, I think, how, how you do your research and how you come to these conclusions. But does that take into account the manipulation of those in the oil industry and the Arabs and op- all of that? Where well, I mean, part of it is all, I mean, first of all, let me explain something real quick to listeners. The fracking industry. We were told this is the savior of the United States. We will become energy independent, become a major exporter. Baloney. Natural gas, yes. We're the lowest cost in the world, um, with or without fracking. But for oil, this was never the case. It's a high cost. It costs most frackers 55 to $80 to break mm. even on, on their total cost of drilling oil. The only reason they were able to, to become a major industry quick was after the 2008 crash, quantitative easing, they pushed down the cost of treasury bonds, junk bonds to, to zero risk-free rates and down to as low as 5% for a junk bond. I mean, historically, junk bonds trade at 8, 10, 12%. Imagine your borrowing cost goes even from more recently before the crisis from 8% down to 5%. Boy, does that affect the, the, your high-cost drilling risk and cost? And then, after oil fell to 32 because it was so manipulated and speculated on, and we had the worst downturn since the Great Depression, this quantitative easing revved up the world, you know, put it on crack and cocaine and heroin and everything else, made it feel good. And we had a rebound, and oil prices rebounded to 115 bucks. If oil prices had not gone from 32 to 115 and junk bond borrowing from 8 to 9 down to 5 to 6, the fracking industry would have never been viable, never had a sellable business plan in the first place. And now that that's all reversing, they're going to go bust, and they're going to never come back again. And Saudi Arabia is sitting there saying, well, we don't like oil prices going down, because our, not because they produce at $7 a barrel total cost, mm. but their government revenues uh, depend heavily on high oil prices, but they're uh, willing to allow these oil prices to sink for a while because they want the frackers to die. They want Venezuela to drop out of the market. They want Russia to become uncompetitive and Iran. Only Iraq is, is, is there another somewhat low-cost producer. They want to gain market share and own the oil markets again, just like John Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller helped push oil prices down in the early 1900s he was a low-cost producer, and he knew he would suffer short-term and benefit long-term. So that's why I think oil prices can go down. There's no government buying oil futures to prevent oil prices from going down. They're buying their own bonds. They're buying their own agency bonds. They're buying other governments' bonds. They're doing everything to keep interest rates low and speculation high and asset values high. But nobody's trying to stop 
the, the, the drop in oil, the only thing that's starting to slow it is the frackers are starting to die. And once they die, and their wells only last two years, they will, they will not re-drill because they won't be able to afford to do it under the new conditions. So they created 5 billion barrels of oil a day in extra capacity, more than any other sector of the world, more than Saudi Arabia or anybody else. And that's going to disappear, and that will eventually take some of the fall off. And so maybe oil prices bottom by 2017, but I think they're going to be 10 to 20 bucks first. And, and they already hit 32 bucks. I, people, I, I say things like that. The Dow could go below 6,000 by early 2017. The oil prices go to 10 to 20 dollars in the next. Several years. People say, "Oh, that's not possible. That's crazy." I said, "We already saw 32 bucks in, in, in late 2008. We already saw a Dow at 60, I think, uh, 6,400." In early 2009, I'm not even projecting much lower than that. This just means we have a bigger crisis than last time, and I'm 100% convinced on that. You can't get something for nothing in this world and print money for free, cover over problems, don't restructure debt, don't hit, take your hits, don't go through austerity like every financial crisis in history, and think you're going to come out back to normal again. It's, it's like a drug addict. How, how, do you, how do you get from a heroin addict to clean again? You've got to go through detox, and detox... It's terrible, but it works. It's the only option. It's detox or die. And Japan's already died, by the way. They never went through detox, and they're basically in, in the emergency room on life support 24 years later. And when the crash happens, what do you think it's going to look like in the U.S.? It's going to look like 2008. But a lot Only, of people didn't really suffer in 2008, just their portfolios. Today we've got... It's because they, they, they nipped it in the bud in the early stages. We saw in the Great Depression, you know, you started seeing banks go down and failing and bank runs and big corp companies failing, stock market crashing. And when the stock market crashed in late 2009, the government stepped in like China's doing today, took, took their money, gave it to brokerage firms and said, just buy stocks with it. Stop this crash. Quantitative easing. I mean, we poured almost four trillion dollars of free money into the banking system. That keeps that gives the banks enough liquidity to fail, but they're not turning around and lending it and expanding the economy and amplifying the money supply again because we already overbarred and overexpanded in the bubble boom. So they're doing they're just taking the money and speculating. Speculation creates bigger bubbles and, and everything, real estate, stocks, commodities, gold, and all this shit, and then they collapse because no bubble can sustain itself no matter what causes it. When anything goes up way faster than the economy for a period of time, like five or ten years, that reality will set in, that bubble will burst. It just takes the right pen to prick it. And when it bursts, all that wealth, that short-term, artificial, something for nothing, my home's going up 20% a year, I'm going to retire on it in 20 years and be, you know, Jed Clampett and Beverly Hills and shit, and my stocks are going up 15, 20% a year, and by, by this, then my stockbroker says I'll be worth $2 million. All of that disappears and is gone. Poof. I call it, it's like magic. If you create money by magic, it disappears. Now you see it, now you don't. And that's what we're going to see. People all just going to say, ooh, I thought I had $200,000 in retirement savings. Oops. Now I only have 50. Oh, I thought my house was worth 400000 Now it's only worth 175. Oh, I thought I had job security. Oops, I might be the one next to be fired. Oh, I thought my business was doing good. Uh, I'm a mortgage broker. Oops, now my business is going under. So overnight, if you don't see this coming and don't protect your business, don't protect your personal assets, even don't live in the right place. If you live in a bubble place, you're going to suffer more than not. You live in a safe place, you're going to suffer less than a dangerous place. I mean, I'm in North Tampa, used to live in Miami, which one's safer? North Tampa. Which one had a bigger bubble? Miami, Miami, especially now. So, And I'm on the outskirts of Tampa. That's safer than being downtown. So in 2000, so I'm, I'm in the very, very small niche of life insurance, whole life insurance. In 2008, 2009, we were so flipping busy. Yeah. <laughs> it was a boom for us because people were freaking out. Um, and we have steady business all the time. But, it, you know, that's in 2008, what did our clients do? How much room do I have in my policies? How do I start another policy? Because I've got money and I want to get it out of the market. They, right. And, and I want something will, that 
will be guaranteed to pay off right. for, for my estate, you know? Right, exactly. And so in terms of employment, you know, the whole world is changing, right? Um, corporations today can employ anybody anywhere in the world, right? So yeah. those college graduates, those that are graduating now or those that, that have graduated recently, their job situation is very different than when you and I graduated. Yeah. How is this depression that's coming also going to affect it? Well, I mean... It- the, the worst thing about it, and this happened to the Bob Hope generation back two generations ago. Every other generation's alike. They grow up in a difficult, challenging period, and they're much different personality. They save for the future. They're more cautious. They, they, they collaborate for the whole. They're not individualistic and me, 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 and uh, life is great, and, you know, I'm going to buy a boat. And they, they're, they're just different in mentality. Um, so, so the Bob Hope generation came of age in the Great Depression and World War II. What worst period in life to sober you up? And, and they end up being a, a hardworking, frugal, responsible, good for the whole, win wars, you know, good for the country generation. Well, the millennials are that. They're, they're coming, they've been coming into the workforce really in the last 10 years, and, and, and the leading edge is just in their early 30s. So they're nowhere near their peak in spending. They've seen the Great Recession. They've seen home prices fall. Baby boomers never saw home prices fall except in a few slides. Their whole life, never. They only saw inflation, or at least falling inflation. These people have seen the first taste of deflation. They've seen the deepest downturn. They've seen housing go down. So they don't walk around saying, oh, God, the first thing i got to do, i got to buy a house, because you can't go wrong buying a house. It goes up, 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 up. They're like, I don't know if I should buy a house. I don't know if I should buy a house because it could go down further. I don't know if I should buy a house because it's too hard to get a loan. And, you know, job the job market is more difficult, and I'm in downtown Dallas, and I don't know if I can keep my job. What if I get a better offer in Denver? I want to be able to pick up and move mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not have to sell a damn condo mm-hmm. and take six to eight months and close it and go through all this stuff or worry if I can even sell it if real estate goes down again. So they think differently. They are – I've got – Three-step kids, two are Generation X, which is just the flip side of the baby boom generation. Uh, they're more practical, but they are a me generation. My youngest is a we generation. Everything's for the group. They would rather spend money going out and hanging out in a restaurant or something or going on a trip with their friends and experiencing stuff rather than buying a new Ferrari or a new Volkswagen Beetle or something. Right. You know, so they're experiential. Right. They are a we generation, not a me so any business ought to be selling collective experiences and, and, and things like that. And, and that's what these people want. So they are different, and every generation is different because they're shaped by their reaction to their parents, who are the opposite of them, and they're shaped by the economic times. You're mostly shaped between childhood and your early 20s, coming of age. That's when you're set as a personality. That's when you decide the music you like. Like, I'm going to listen to baby boom music and then the 70s music for the rest of my life till I die. I'll pick up a few, you know, emerging bands and stuff, but I still mostly listen to that stuff because that's, you know. And then people, young people look at me like, who is that? Who? You know, they, they know the Beatles, and that's about it. You know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, you know. So they are different. And they'll spend differently, and they will be, again, more collective, conformist-oriented, and they will uh, be more cautious. The baby boomers always took risk, never saved for retirement, because they never thought they'd have to. Because they, they had a good – they had the 70s was the only difficult period they went through, but they were in school and in college, most of them, spending their parents' money drunk half the time. So they didn't feel the inflation and the recession of the 70s. Their parents did. They've grown up in la-la land. What about this massive immigration that's going on in Europe and the U.S. and how that's changing the demographic group? Well, first of all, I'll tell you that most people don't realize that countries that have the greatest relative immigration have been countries that have good schools in English-speaking countries, and it has been Australia, Singapore, New Zealand, Switzerland, uh, even Sweden, those are the countries that have had the highest immigration. The United States has the most because we're so large and we have such diverse industries. But our immigration, people don't realize it, peaked in 1991. It's been dropping more steadily since 2000, and it's dropping again since the Great Recession. We actually had a point a few years after the Great Recession in 2000, 
nine or ten, were Mexican immigration. There was many people leaving as coming in. It went to zero. In the early 1930s, the highest immigration wave relative to the economy the U.S. ever had dropped from World War I, where it's peaked, coming into that, to nothing in the Great Depression, to zero. So immigration comes and goes, good times, bad times. And good times, a country that, the, the few countries that do attract immigration or want immigration, um, it happens easily, but when times get bad, they, people say, well, wait a minute, I'll pick the damn lettuce, you know. I'll babysit your kids because I'm, I'm unemployed, you know, and I'm scared. And you see Trump say, you know, send these 11 million people home and, you know, you know, fry them on the barbecue. And people, you know, people in the lower income ranges are jumping up and down. Yes, we don't want to just make them citizens. We don't want to just find them. We want to send them back where they came from because they're competing with us. Now, people in professional industries love the immigrants. My gosh, you know, look at all the services we get and look how much they lower our costs and look how hardworking they are. So we've been predicting again, for many years, that when the economy went down, starting in 2008, that births would drop off, because these millennials aren't having as many kids, right. because nobody, partly because each generation has less, but partly because you don't have kids as much when the economy looks bad in the future. But immigration is dropping, and if we have this next downturn I'm talking about, it's going to drop like a rock. Really? And, and there are, you know, there's countries already banning it anyway. So <clears throat> you can't rely on immigration is a long-term strategy. And if you do, you have to be right. I'm, I'm getting ready to go to Korea in a week. <clears throat> it's a conference on aging. And what do we do about it? And I said, boom, 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 you can do this. You can have older people stay in the workforce longer, although that does hurt the younger people because it's harder for them right. to get in. You can, you can give better maternity leave. You can um, subsidize child care, which is the one thing proven to have a big impact. But the biggest thing is immigration. But if I'm going to South Korea, Japan, I'm like, forget it. You don't, have a, you don't have a hope. South Koreans don't speak that good of English except the younger people, um, and not even fully there. Japan doesn't. They don't like immigration. They have a very homogeneous culture, and they value that. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. It is very good culture. But they don't have a capacity to attract immigration unless they plan long-term. If they started saying every kid from kindergarten or preschool forward learns English. That's the first thing I would do if I was a futuristic seeing, uh, you know, leader of a country. And we got to start getting everybody to learn language, and we got to have start to have our universities and schools, more of them teach in English. If you could do that, those countries could, could easily be a magnet, because I'm telling you, most, uh, all this stuff about China and Southeast Asia, oh, they're going to be rich and middle class, it's baloney. Their middle class is five to 10,000 a year. You know, Japan and Korea is 30 to 40. Ours is 50. You know, uh, Norway is, is 100. You know, they're never going to get to that point. There's a lot of people that would love to migrate to a country like South Korea, Japan. But you get, but people will migrate and take great strains to get their kids. Even if they never learn English, their kids are going to get to the United States or Australia or Singapore or somewhere, and they're going to learn English, and they're going to get the American dream even if they have to pick lettuce for that to happen. But it's every country, there's only a handful of countries that really net attract a lot of immigration. It is Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Canada, United States, Switzerland, and Sweden. That's it. Hmm. What about the geopolitical conflict with Russia and the U.S. and China and what's going on in the Middle East, and how does that play into... You're thinking. Well, yeah, it, it's a strange time because this is rare. You know, the uh, Western Europe, especially the English and Dutch and French and even the Germans, less degree, but especially the, the Dutch and the English dominated the seas. And the English had the dominant navy and the reserve currency for, you know, 100, 150 years. And then the U.S. came over and became that. Now, we've got the dominant navy and military and reserve currency and we're the largest country in the world, and the dollar is the standard, and English is the standard for language. I mean, we're at a time, because of the strong and rapid emergence of Asia, where countries like China and India, and in Russia secondarily, they're a fading demographic power and a fading military power, but they're still uh, the, the biggest military power outside the United States, um, is causing a rare world where there isn't a dominant policeman country. We keep trying to do that and keep getting our asses kicked, mm -hmm. frankly, because we're not anymore. 
and, and we keep losing wars because we're going into wars we can't win and we can't go into fully. I mean, we fought World War II 120%, and we won it. But, but you know, ever since, we, haven't, we didn't do that in Vietnam. And so what we have is, is we kind of have China is, is the rising power, Russia fading, Europe's fading, United States is plateauing because we're still dominant, and then you got down the road India um, rising. You're going to have a, a world with three, you know, 20, 30 years from now. It's not going to be Europe anymore, not going to be Russia. It's going to be three superpowers, China, U.S., and India, rising. And so there's not going to be one dominant country, and we're kind of going through a process. How do we adjust to that? Americans realize we can't be the policeman for everybody. The world's too big now. We're not growing as fast. We're not as dominant as we were. Uh, and we've lost a bunch of wars and wasted a lot of money um, and lost a lot of people doing this. <clears throat> so in between, we're kind of in this nowhere land. And so you got the Middle East up and down. you got Russia trying to enter that. you got Russia trying to get Ukraine back. you got China and Japan and duking it out over islands. you got Europe worrying about Russia. You know, we're all worried about China one of these days, uh, probably worrying more than we should if you understood where they're going. But... Um, you know, that makes the geopolitical environment very unstable, and, but, but the biggest trigger thus far has simply been 9-11. Ever since 9-11, this backlash against the Western world, especially the United States, you've got a lot of backward countries, especially in the Middle East, in parts of Africa, and parts of Asia, <clears throat> that have suddenly seen an influx at least of selective wealth because of things like oil and the commodity boom and stuff. So they're seeing wealth and they're seeing Westerners come in, and you've got this unbelievable clash of, 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 of you know, urban, sophisticated, wealthy, professional people with, with some of the most backward people in the world that have women walking around in tents, you know. Uh, I mean, and, and it's that bad. And so that's the backlash. These people are like saying, I'd rather fight than switch. I mean, we will do anything to not let our primitive backward culture, which they value, they don't see it as primitive and backward. They're right. They're following their religion. They're doing what they're supposed to do. These infidels that run around in BMWs and, and you know, overweight and blah, 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 and let their women drive for crying out loud and vote and all this shit, they are crazy, and we've got to stop them. So this is a, this is a conflict that has been going on, especially in the last decade. And again, this geopolitical cycle we have, you look back at history, 83 to 2000, pretty much nothing of any significance went wrong in the world. And 2001 to now, everything that could have gone wrong, except for World War III, and we may still get a minor World War III in the Middle East or with Russia, for all I know. But, but the, the reason I don't see World War III, rather than just continued civil wars and conflict and tensions, is that there's no countries that could fight World War III. There is nobody that if it came to a full-out 120% war could challenge the United States. And China doesn't even have a hope of attacking us. Their military and navy is meant to protect their trade routes and to keep their citizens from revolting against their you know, top-down government. So I don't see World War III, but <clears throat> this geopolitical cycle tells me next four Maybe five years are going to continue to be very difficult, probably worse, especially in a bad economy. And then early in the next decade, things, just like in the 80s, the Cold War quickly faded, you know, and the you know, economy came back and inflation fell and blah, 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 no major wars or conflicts. The world's going to start getting better and people aren't going to understand why. It's just a cycle. Harry, your stuff is always so fascinating. Please tell our listeners how they can... Um, have access to it, your website? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the best thing, we, we just try to get people to know us because we know we're saying something very different. And, and, you know, only a few people like you give me 30, 40, 50 minutes to explain stuff. Usually I have to go on TV and I have two and a half minutes and I have to debate some crazy person who thinks, you know, mm. you can print money forever. But so we have a, a website, harrydent.com. There we'll send our recently updated paperback version of the demographic cliff for free. All you got to do is pay four ninety five shipping and handling, and that is our hard cost. We're just, we're just giving you the book for free. Great book, um, by the way. And at the top right of that website, we also have a free daily newsletter called Economy and Markets. You just put your uh, um, web address in there, and you're on. And then we have six issues a week. And, and again, 
It's just short one-page things, probably one graph, an issue, me writing, or my partner Rodney, or our technical analyst Adam O'Dell, and we're just keeping you in tune to what we're thinking about current events and throwing new research and stuff. And then when people fall in love with us, then they can get on our regular monthly newsletter and pay a small fee for that. But we just let you try it free, kick, kick, kick the tires until you say, I like it or I don't. It's fantastic information. We're going to link to your website on livingwealthyradio.com along with um, the recording of today's show. And uh, I always appreciate uh, your energy and your perspective on things. Um, I've been following you for a long time, and I just, I just love your stuff. Um, so, Harry, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate okay, you. Okay, thank you, Teresa. All right. You take good care. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. bye-bye. It's easy to be optimistic when the sun is shining, but there is no denying that stormy weather is on the horizon for the world economy. Now is the time to take the necessary steps to secure your investments for what may be another really dramatic downturn. Now is certainly the time to reevaluate your investment strategies, lose the investments that only do well during the good times. Make sure your financial ship is ready for the next storm. That's what we do at Living Wealthy Financial Group. Exactly what we do. You heard Harry Dent talk about how life insurance companies, certain types of life insurance companies did so well during the Great Depression. And there's a reason why. So check out, check us out at livingwealthyfinancial.com. You'll see what we do. We're happy to answer questions and see if the strategy could work for you. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.